Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Think about all the things that's happened and LeBron to be so solid. So I think that the fact that it's like, oh, Bron's hurt. He's out. It's like, well, wait a minute. It's, what? it's really amazing what, what he has done. And I think, you know, people get annoyed when you talk about it. Like whenever I tweet something around, people are like, oh, it's, he choked in this case. Or what about Miami? And it's like, listen, yeah. I, he's been doing this for 18, 19 years now. That is astounding. There are people who were one-year-old who are now full adults who only know a world in which LeBron James is like the greatest player in the world. March Madness time in the men's bracket. The Oral Roberts Golden Eagles put their heads down and went to work sucking Ohio State and now Florida out of the tourney. The Loyola Chicago oh, Gryffindors knocked off number one seeded Illinois. Shouts to Sister Jean. Never tell us anything bad about Sister Jean. And the Pac-12 continues to soar higher than Bill Walton's dreams as Oregon State eliminated Oklahoma State and top draft prospect Cade Cunningham. On the women's side, it's been chalk, chalk, chalk city with top seeds advancing across the board despite getting a second-class workout facility. More on that later. Plus... LeBron James injured, LaMelo Ball out for the season, and the Athletics' Chantel Jennings and author, chef, and now film director Eddie Wong will join us. I'm Jason Concepcion. I'm Renee Montgomery. Let's get it! And this is Take Line. Let's go! Let's go! <laughs> Renee, how was your weekend? You had a busy week. Yes, March Madness is upon us, as you talked about at the top of the show. I see you, Oral Roberts. I see you. Um, I've been calling March Madness, so on the women's side, yeah. called two games on Sunday, two games on Monday, one game on Man. Tuesday. So, yeah, we're, we're rolling over here. How was your weekend, Jason? It was good. It was just me uh, sitting in front of the television, just watching as much basketball as I could possibly watch. That and and watching the new TV shows that came out, the the Falcon and Winter Soldier and the Snyder Cut and all that stuff. It was just a packed, 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 packed weekend with a lot of basketball in store. That's the best kind of weekend, though. Good TV, nothing but time and snacks to watch it. Okay. NCAA tournament obviously is going on. That's been what uh, the sports world has been talking about. That's what you and I have been watching. That's what you've been working that's been your job, your hustle. This is, I can't figure out which one is the side hustle, which was the main hustle. It's all the hustle. Um, lots of news there. So the grind. Uh, the, the main thing is on the men's side first. It has just yeah. been upset after upset after upset. Uh, we had OK State out. We have number one Illinois out. Uh, we have Oral Roberts rampaging as a 15 seed into the Sweet 16. I think the first uh, 15 seed to get this deep since uh, Florida Gulf Coast University, a.k.a. Uh, 
Dunk City. Um, you're someone who has played in this atmosphere, has taken part in this atmosphere. What yeah. what do you think the what do you think this upheaval has been about? Is this just like typical the madness, or is it uh, is it part of just the kind of instability that we've seen throughout sports because of COVID uh, this year? Yeah, it's the latter. It's it's the madness on steroids, and I know steroids is a sensitive word for sports. So, but it's the madness just amplified because. You got teams ha who haven't started at the right time that you normally start, so you don't get your normal preseason. Then you have health and safety protocols where players are in and out. You're testing every other two seconds, worried about a positive test, not having your normal college experience, not in classrooms, not even eating in the cafeteria, a lot of teams. Um, so it's all of those things. And then you throw in March Madness to just really sizzle the pot. And then you get upset city. Um, I think on the men's side, because there's so much parity in a sense of mm. typically on the women's side, the top recruits go to the top teams. On the men's side, a guy might think he's the greatest ever, so he's going to go to a school that you might not have ever heard of, and he wants to be Michael Jordan on that team. And so I think that's where you start to see those upsets on the men's side. What are, what are your thoughts on no, that? That's a, that's a really good point. I think one of the things that, uh, that has been a, a real trend over the past several seasons is the lack of correlation between a deep, NCAA run and some kind of bump in the lottery, you know, Markel Fultz, uh, oh, yeah. Zion Williamson, early exits, not appearing in the tournament, whatever. None of that really affected their, uh, their stock. I think Cade Cunningham, same thing where it's, this is not, nobody's going to talk to him about the fact that, uh, okay. State crashed out of the tournament. Um, and yeah. so I think that that's part of it. I think that because there is, um, less opportunities on the women's side for for uh, for promo for getting eyes on the game um, that a deep tournament run just becomes that much more important where with the guys like you know I'm not saying this this played into like any kind of like lack of inspiration or a lack of fire although like you know the Cowboys missed a ton of threes came out a little bit soft in the first half and then turned it on at the end but still I think the fact yeah. that it you're not like playing for your draft stock. I think that has something to do with it, at least for the teams like, you know, uh, with players who are hoping to see themselves in the NBA draft this year. I think that might have something to do with it. And to that point in 2013, the number two Georgetown team at that time, they lost to Florida Gulf Coast and Otto Porter Jr., as we all know who's in the NBA now, was still selected number three overall in the draft. So that kind of, to your point, um, said it doesn't really do much to a player's stock. And then the seedings were just weird. You know, there was like a Loyola Chicago, great defensive team. The fact that they were seeded number eight uh, was just weird. Um, I just think that there's a lot of, just a lot of weirdness. And then the other thing is, isn't this always what we want? Like, don't we want this? Isn't this how, isn't this what March Madness's yes. brand is? It's literally madness is in the title. This, the yes. whole, this whole thing is like a, is a festival of, of unpredictable basketball and gambling madness. That's and the I was, brand. You just hit it on the head because I was going to say, think about how many bracket tournaments there are with huge prizes you know like you get the top bracket you win a million dollars but 
they don't want everything to go as scheduled because there will be a lot of people with the right bracket. There will be a lot of normalcy. So they, to that point, the madness is highly welcomed by the NCAA. I even think, you know, when it comes to seeding, they might even embrace the madness when they see just to see. They might be like, huh, I see. Let's put this team with that team and let's see what happens. Kind of. I, I think they embrace that 100 percent. Uh, on the women's side, it's just been chalk, as noted as noted above. All uh, the yeah. top seeds move forward. Uh, your UConn Huskies just absolutely stepped on high point. 102.59. Yeah, it was tough. I called that one. Paige Beckers with a stat line that is unreal. Yeah, she scored 24. It's the highest any player has ever had from UConn. So I say that, and that's not like saying any other sentence. UConn has had some players. Yes. Um, Amaya Moore, Dinah Taurasi, Sue Bird, just to name a few. Paige Beckers outscored everyone on their NCAA debut freshman year. So needless to say, the girl is as good as advertised. I don't know what else anyone needs to see. I don't know if anyone needs to see anything else, but she is as good as advertised. And to your point, everything, all the number ones, it was on par with that. Uh, Stanford uh, beat Utah Valley 87 to 44. And that 40, yeah, nerd nation, they knocked me out of the tournament. Um, that 43, that you never forget, um, that 43-point victory for them set uh, the second highest margin in NCAA history. South Carolina won 79 to 53 on Mercer. I mean, you just go down the line. Other than Georgia Tech and Stephen F. Austin um, with a 52-54 overtime thriller, yeah, everything was chalk. What do you see going forward? Any any predictions for us on either of the men's or the women's sides of the bracket? Yeah, I expect on the men's side more madness. I just that's just kind of the men's <laughs> tournament. I could just think of ones off the top of my head. Cardiac Kimba from UConn when his moment happened. Um, I can think of a Mario Chalmers uh, with with Kansas. You know, like so the men you know, pretty known for the madness. Um, With women, we don't get into our madness until Sweet 16, Final Four, where you start to see those buzzer beaters and those thrillers. So for the women's side, I expect more chalk until we get down to the thick of things. Uh, And then, of course, the big story in uh, the NCAAs for the women's side was the disparity in facilities, uh, which blew up on social media uh, and... uh, was really inexcusable and was called out as such and was uh, commented on as such by NCAA uh, reps. So um, Oregon women's player Sedona Prince tweeted out a video last week that showed the men's weight training facilities, which I think would be something that you would, um, of the quality that you would assume that a top flight athletic tournament would provide for their athletes. Uh, and this was in right. the men's uh, bubble in Indianapolis. And then in San Antonio, the women's facilities consisted of one, I repeat, one set of dumbbells, or or I should say stand of dumbbells, right, which appeared to go no higher than 20 pounds for the pair. And then like a table with like three yoga mats on it. It was... Yeah. crazy it was tough it was tough it was 
I like in and hear me out because this is probably going to be a shocker, but I was yeah. actually really happy for everything that happened. And the reason I say this is because in 2009, I remember that I'm sure in 2009, our swag bags was nothing compared to the 2009 swag bags on the NCAA men's side. We were champions that year in 2009. That's why I use that example. Um, went undefeated. And I'm sure that we were nowhere near what the men had on their side. This has been an ongoing thing for years now. So anybody that's yeah. been around women's sports, anyone that's been just actively paying attention to women's sports, you should be disappointed but not surprised. And so I love that this all came out because then it gave people imagery. Like you can say it till you have no more breath in you. Yeah, we don't get treated the same on the women's side as the men's side. But until people see it like that, here comes the outrage. I, I That's a great point. It's seeing something is so powerful because like along with uh, the disparities in facilities, the NCAA also acknowledged that um, they were purchasing basically the cheaper, less accurate version of the COVID test for the women's athletes. Um, they were getting them the, uh, the men get the PCR test, which is considered the gold standard. The women were not getting that test. Uh, that has been kind of the sub theme of this conversation it hasn't been as blown up as the, as the disparity in facilities, but it is still like an absolute head shaker to me that that is the case. That is yeah. crazy to me. There's so much going on and, and, and there's a lot of technicalities. So we're going to talk some more about this with the senior writer from the athletic Chantel Jennings. Chantel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Okay, so Jason already brought up the topic of COVID testing. Now, can you just tell the difference? Is one better than the other? I've seen that one is more accurate, one isn't. What's the deal of different testing on different sides? So the men are getting the PCR, which, as Jason said, is kind of considered the gold standard in testing, while the women are getting a few of those, is my understanding, but mostly the antigen testing, which is less accurate. And so when you're talking about a tournament that was pulled together during a pandemic and something as necessary as testing has an obvious difference, that's a problem. What was the reasoning there for the different tests? So there hasn't been a super clear reasoning for anything. I mean, I think we've heard space, <laughs> communication, uh, logistics, planning, kind of every sort of answer under the sun, uh, except the one that probably seems pretty obvious to most people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think the thing that is so notable to me about this situation is, first of all, it is inexcusable, which, you know, uh, various uh, people from the NCAA have, have spoke out about, have, have admitted, I guess, uh, that it was inexcusable. But like, to me, the thing that's crazy about the weight room specifically is that it was, it would almost be weirdly better if they just didn't put anything there. Because to put one stack of dumbbells means that People had to come and deliver that, then look around and say, yes, this is good. This makes sense. The one 
a pyramid of dumbbells in a huge room and then a fold up table with like three yoga mats on it. This is good. We have done our jobs. Whereas if they had just delivered nothing, then at least they could have used some fig leaf excuse of, oh, uh, the, the equipment got rerouted somewhere else. And, and it was all a vast mistake. No, but the fact that you delivered this stuff means someone looked at that and said, good. That's good. We did a good job. <laughs> well, so you said three yoga mats. Um, the answer isn't that much better. The the answer is ten, which is still not enough for a I full basketball team. <laughs> like that's the thing, though. They were like <laughs> ten yoga mats. So the five players who don't play as much don't get to do yoga with the team or something. Or maybe they bring towels from their hotel room, and those can be their yoga mats. Like. They also oh. let it be known there was one stationary bike so that one player could ride the stationary <laughs> bike at a time. Um, and it was in the NCAA manual that got sent to coaches leading into the tournament. It was, as Georgia coach Joni Taylor said, there was it was put in writing that there wouldn't be full weight room facilities until the Sweet 16, which gets into a whole nother slew of uh, issues for the NCAA that they were acknowledging up front the women aren't going to get as much as the men until the Sweet 16. But within that, there were also sort of vague references toward weight machines, cardio machines, weight balls that were going to be sanitized between use. And it was sort of like, then you look at that triangle of dumbbells and 10 yoga mats and you wonder, (laughs) like, what? And I also, the fact that they specified sanitized yoga mats for 10 members of your team was just sort of like, the tone deafness of it all was palpable. Yeah, I think that's that's the problem. It's almost like, you know how they say if you make a mistake, you almost have to just own it and, and own up to it. Mm-hmm. It was the excuses that came along with it that just had more questions. And so when when questions were asked, I'm hearing that this is not a Title IX thing. Do you know anything about why this isn't a Title IX case? Well, nonprofits don't fall under the scope of Title IX, and the NCAA is technically a nonprofit. And so while they are the regulators and the enforcers of rules among universities, which are under the scope of Title IX, the NCAA itself is not. Um, Just another nice little technicality to make this a little more convoluted. Mark Emmert, uh, president of the NCAA, uh, makes about $3.7 million a year in base salary. So it is a profit organization for for some people. Um, you recently wrote a story uh, about uh, moms in the bubble and the way the NCAA is handling that. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you found. Yeah, so this was um, an issue that we, I guess I as a reporter, was aware of leading up to the tournament. Uh, the weight room stuff was was not as obvious until Sedona Prince and Allie Kirshner, mm-hmm. the Stanford sports performance coach, put that out there. But the issue with moms was that the NCAA, which is something they like to do, they like to have sort of blanket protocols because uh, they like to dance in that area. And so they kind of put down this blanket protocol of 34 members in the travel party, no more. And they said, it can be whoever you want. You know, you get to decide. So it's totally up to the judgment of the coaches and the athletic departments. But every single living, breathing human counts toward this 34 count. And the issue you run into is that you have a nonprofit 
that has been saying for years, we need to get more women into this profession. We need to promote and support women. And as Coach Adia Barnes said, you know, we're women's basketball. One thing that some women choose to do is have children. We need to support those women. Imagine that. Shocking, right? But so you have, Adia is a good example. She has two kids in the bubble with her, one of whom is a breastfeeding infant. That baby counts toward 34 count. And so even though on the flight, that seat that her baby would have taken up as an individual, a tier one individual was unused because obviously an infant is sitting with one of the parents. Um, Her daughter is taking one of those spots in in the best possible way, right? She's she loves being a mom, but right. you think of could they have brought another trainer? Could they have brought another academic counselor? Could they have brought a mental health counselor? But because the NCAA had this blanket protocol of saying, no, this is how it's gonna be, they are left without that. And then on top of that, if you did bring children into the bubble, there wasn't any outdoor space to start with. And so you're talking to these parents who have a single room. Her husband is an assistant on her team, so they have a a conjoined room. But you have like a five-year-old running around in your room while you're trying to coach in the NCAA tournament. There's no outdoor space. Finally, they now have some outdoor space. But the way I wrote about it was that the WNBA in the bubble welcomed moms. Yeah, definitely. The CBA. Yeah. a, A big part of that was making the WNBA more accessible for families and moms. And I spoke to Terry Jackson about this. She said, from the beginning of the bubble planning, moms and children were at the forefront of the discussion. And when it came to the NCAA, which had a roadmap from the WNBA, kind of threw its hands up and said, eh, this seems good enough. Yeah, you know, so you you hit it on the head. Um, the NCAA has basically just said that they fell short on a couple of things. That's kind of where they're, they're staying at it. But let's just say money-wise in mm. general, Like, I know we don't have the numbers, but we could all assume that there just wasn't the same amount of dollars put towards the women's side as the men's side, correct? Yes. And I think, Renee, to your point, the differences between the men's and the women's game, what they're getting, it's not something new. But I think this season in particular, because of the bubble, there was a vacuum. And when normally these games would have been played on campuses... I assume you guys at UConn hosted quite a few early round games or or at Mohegan Sun, but <laughs> we did. But so normally it's at a college campus. So the facilities are what they are for that program and it's the higher seated team. So it's probably pretty good facilities. But right now the NCAA had two vacuums and it was their job to fill them. And if you just look at how they decided to fill them, <laughs> it's pretty obvious where the priorities were. So Renee uh, mentioned the comment dropping the ball, which was spoken by Dan Gavitt, the NCAA's vice president of basketball, who makes a reported half million dollar a year salary to run a basketball tournament once a year. Uh, A lot of the commentary about this on the Internet uh, from, you know, various sources is some uh, version of, okay, well, the men make more. They're bringing in more money. So uh, 
what do you expect? Of course, the, the women's facilities is going to be lesser because they're not making that much money. What can you tell us about that breakdown? I, I find it hard to believe that they can't find $50,000 somewhere to like build out a weight room, but like, okay, uh, maybe that's the case. Like how much is the women's tournament actually making? I would imagine a lot since they're selling out their final fours and they're on TV all the time. But what do you make of that argument that, oh, well, they're not making as much as the men. So what do you expect? We have to cut corners somewhere. So I have a few thoughts on that because it's something that as, as an individual who covers women's basketball, I hear this a lot. You know, the men's yeah. game makes more than the women. So they should get more. So first of all, the issue with that is that is the argument the NCAA does not want you to make, even though all of these fans are thinking they're huge fans of March Madness. <laughs> that is the case the NCAA does not want you to make. Because to acknowledge that the men, which their tournament makes quite a bit more, $800 million to $35 million a year in TV contracts more. So there is a significant difference. However, again, this nonprofit entity, which regulates sports championships for colleges, doesn't want you to look at a situation in which the sport is the same, the path to the championship is the same, the championship is the same. The only difference is gender and say, but one makes a little bit more money, a lot more money. So they should have more because that sounds a little bit not like a nonprofit should operate in that way. And the second issue I have with that argument is that it is really not a complete conversation to talk about revenue when you're not talking about investment. And this mm. is kind of the heart of the issue. Mm. And as I listened to and asked so many of these women's basketball players, you know, were you surprised? What were your thoughts when you saw those photos? Time and time again, I heard, not surprised. I'm a woman. I've played women's sports forever. This is kind of par for the course. And so yep. when we talk about revenue without talking about investment, that comes down to a lot of different things. And yes, it is money, but it's also going back to sort of the excuses that the NCAA gave in terms of communication. Why wasn't there communication? You're telling me that not once there was a conversation in which Dan Gavitt facilitated something between the men's and women's championship committee saying, are the guys getting more than six dumbbells? Are they getting more than 10 yoga mats? There wasn't one time where that was made a priority. And then you talk about, again, TV contracts, where that's where a lot of the money comes from in college sports. This will be the first year that all of the women's games are televised nationally. Yep. It's been 40 years that the men's games have been broadcast by ESPN every year. Think about that. And so when we talk about that revenue without talking about investment, it's just such an incomplete conversation and it gets to the root of so many more issues. And I think that's specifically why this has really struck a chord with so many women's basketball players right now. So good, Chantel. Yes. Yeah, that was really great. Uh, that was Chantel Jennings, senior writer for The Athletic where you can find all of her work. Also follow her on Twitter at Chantel Jennings. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, so as we were going to uh, tape, uh, some sad news in the in the basketball community yeah. came across the headlines. Um, Elgin Baylor, eleven time All Star, Laker legend, nineteen fifty eight fifty nine Rookie of the Year, um, 
also one of the first GMs uh, who was uh, black in the NBA, um, just a pioneer in every regard. He passed away uh, today at age 86. Really sad. I mean, Elgin, one of the forgotten, I think, players when we talk about like greatest to ever do it. Some facts about Elgin that I think are just like unbelievable. First of all, uh, playing during an era when, you know, uh, the civil rights fight was absolutely yeah. going on. This is an article from 1959 from uh, a newspaper in West Virginia where uh, Baylor was uh, scheduled to Shouts play. Shouts to West Virginia. Yeah. Uh, kind of. I know. Let me the, just say kind of. Yeah, because we know what the story is. So uh, this is yes. so in 59. Elgin Baylor uh, was scheduled to play uh, basically a, a promo game in, in West Virginia. Um, people paid between $800 and $1,000 to, to watch the game. And then uh, Elgin didn't show. And a telegram to league president Maurice Podoloff in New York, ABC promoter H. Thomas Corey said the following. This is from the... Uh, 1959 report, quote, urged disciplinary action against Elgin Baylor of Minneapolis Club who refused to play against Cincinnati here Friday night in protest of hotel segregation. Records show Minneapolis Club was advised on December 29th that segregation enforced at hotels is absence from the lineup most embarrassing to us and damaged our chances of promoting future NBA games here. They would eventually apologize, but this is the kind of shit that Elgin Baylor had to deal with uh, for his entire career. And then, uh, how about this? In 1961-62, Elgin Baylor, uh, he was called up to active duty with the Army. He uh, was staying in his Army barracks in Washington State all through the week. And then he would, when he could get a pass to meet the Lakers to play with the Lakers, which was not all the time, he'd have to put in for a, for a weekend pass and then it would have to be approved. He would then fly regular commercial like in 1961-62 to wherever the Lakers were and play with them and in that season he averaged 38-19 and 5 assists it, just an incredible 38-19 19 19 and 5 while with the army yes while with the army while dealing with racism while dealing with the and, and for people, I'm going to assume you guys know sports. So imagine not yeah. practicing regularly with your team. You're not practicing yes. regularly. You come back. You probably have to learn new plays, learn how is the team playing, how are they flowing. And to still drop 38, 19, and 5, just, I mean, that's an averaging that. I, I, like, I love talking about the basketball because it makes all the other stuff so much more profound that, yes, he was in the Army. Yes, he was doing these different things. Trailblazer, the first GM, to me, that's a big deal because even now in 2021, yeah. we're still fighting to get more representation in those positions. And so for him to hold that that space in 1986 to 2009, I mean, we're still looking for progressiveness in that that space. And so, yeah, uh, rest in peace to a trailblazer. It's a great point because what this really should hammer home for everybody is this was not that long ago. Elgin Baylor exactly. was a professional NBA player also serving his country who would uh, play road games and at various places throughout the country would not be able to eat with his team, would have to eat at the Greyhound station because of segregation in the country. Here's another fact about, uh, about Elgin Baylor uh, also fought for, uh, 
for just pay for his colleagues in 1964. Famously, the All-Star Game was supposed to be televised. Uh, it was going to be played in Boston. Elgin Baylor, among other uh, player leaders, refused to take the court unless uh, the NBA gave in on certain of their demands, including improved uh, playing facilities, including stipends for when they retire, uh, including uh, better environments when they travel and less, uh, you know, more space between games. Uh, yeah. Elgin Baylor got all that. He put his career on the line and he got that for the other people. And Jason, let me with. just let me just drop this nugget. A lot of the stuff that Elgin Baylor was fighting for, the women's game is fighting for now. I mm-hmm. mean, everything that yep. you're naming, all the things you're talking about, we fly commercial, you know, like, so we still fly commercial to a game. I've had mm-hmm. games where I land in the city, we're on a back to back and I go from the airport straight to the gym to play the game. Yep. Just, and this is not 20 years ago. This was two years ago when right. things like that were happening three years ago. And so just to show you there's, there's a progression. Cause a lot of times people always love to look at the women's game and be like, oh yeah, you're doing, you're flying commercial. You should, everything starts at a certain place. And so the women's game, we're at that place where now we realize, okay, we got to a point where we do want to demand more. And that's why this new CBA was big for us. But that's yeah. why I call him a trailblazer because he was blazing the trail at that time for minorities in the NBA because it wasn't the norm then. And people are probably like, how is that possible? Yeah, everything yeah. is normal until it's not, until somebody tells you, this is not yes. normal. Can we change it? And so he was that guy that at every turn was like, I know this may seem like the norm, but it's actually not acceptable. Let's change it. Rest in peace, Elgin Baylor. In other news, lots of NBA news going on while the tournament is also going on. Uh, LeBron James injured against your Atlanta Hawks. Uh, high ankle sprain. Seems like he's going to be out a number yeah. of weeks, uh, perhaps a month. Uh I think the backdrop of this, other other than, you know, it's so rare to see uh, LeBron injured, is, man, the MVP race is just wide open now. Everybody who is yeah. a top MVP candidate, Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, Joel Embiid, James Harden, have some kind of argument against them. Jokic, uh, the Denver Nuggets, frankly, uh, are not winning at the level that you would expect the MVP uh, player to be elevating their team to. Uh, LeBron James now injured, going to be out uh, for a month or so. Uh, Joel Embiid also injured, going to be out for a couple weeks. Uh, and then James Harden, you know, uh, dogged it in Houston until he got traded uh, to the Brooklyn Nets, where he's been fantastic. Who's your leader in the clubhouse right now for MVP right now? Um, twofold. So I'm going with a Damian Lillard. I'm Woo! like one of those people that I don't care the numbers. Right. So for me, I'm like, who is like, if you just talk to NBA players, who is a player that they know is like a certified, we call it dog. And we mean it in the best way possible. Like they got that inner fight that you don't really want to see them. Like you don't want to match up with Damian Lillard in the playoffs. I know that, you know that. I don't know if we would say the same about Giannis Antetokounmpo. I just don't know. I don't know if we would say the mm. same about James Harden. Just if you look at who do you want to match up in with the playoffs, I would say if I'm looking at a list of Damian Lillard, James Harden, Giannis, Embiid, LeBron, and Jokic, well, the two names that pop out to me personally is 
LeBron and Damian Lillard. And so since LeBron is going to be out for an extended amount of time, I understand that that shifts the conversation. So, yeah, I just look at it from the baller test. Like, who do I not want to match up against? It's Damian Lillard for sure. For me, I still feel like it's Joel Embiid. Um, The Sixers are winning with him gone, but they're eking it out as as evidenced by this weekend in the – uh, absolute injustice that was perpetrated on the New York Knicks with the, the Sixers uh, winning down the stretch due to a foul call that oh, I think was gosh. Uh, <laughs> just one of the most foul things that's ever happened on a basketball court. Um, but I think I think that it's probably still Embiid, especially if he, uh, you know, if he's not going to miss that much time. Uh, Bill Walton missed 24 games and won the MVP in 1978. Allen Iverson missed 11 games when he won yeah. in, in 2001. Um, I have a question about those missed games, okay? So should there be just a rule that if you don't play in X amount of games, you're not eligible? I think there is that rule, but I'm just saying, like, for instance, LeBron might miss the month straight, right? Which could be, let's say, 20 games. Well, Joel Embiid has already missed 12 games so far this season. So if you sprinkle in two games here, four games there, what if Joel Embiid and LeBron end up having the same amount of missed games, but Joel Embiid's was coming and going. LeBron's was one big chunk. That's why I I, I don't know how to break it down in a sense of a player's missing because when I do the MVP race, all those players are exceptional, right. obviously, because that's why we're talking about MVP. So I start to say, well, what separates them in my mind? When the, when the points and all the numbers are pretty much the same, that's how I got to my reasoning of, okay, who's the dog right. in the group this year? And it, and to me, it's Damian Lillard if LeBron's out. But what about the missed games? Like, how did, like, because Joel Embiid, that's your choice. He's missed 12. That is my choice. He's averaging 29 <laughs> points a game, 11 rebounds, three assists. He's shooting 52%. Yeah. This is through 31 games. I think that it, here's the yep. thing. I think that the NBA and the W have done something very smart when it comes to their, MVP awards, which is they have never really defined them, right? They it's very amorphous. What does most valuable mean? It changes from year to year. And I think that's really smart because what does it do? It it creates situations like this where we're sitting here arguing about like what the what the definition of valuable is. So I think that the fact that all of these top candidates have some kind of argument against them because of that i'm gonna stick with my uh, with my choice which is joel Embiid. he's just (laughs) been this you know the straw that stirs the drink at philly he's been unreal on both sides of the ball defensively and and offensively for me that's the thing that lifts him above uh nikola Jokic, who obviously his stats are incredible he's the greatest passing big man i think ever at this point the advanced stats for him are off the charts in terms of like clutch shooting. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But I think when it comes to the uh, the fact that Embiid does it on both ends and that his numbers are as eye-popping as they are, it goes to Embiid for me. Okay, and having said that, if both ends matter, should some of those candidates not be on the list then? Uh, you mean uh, Jokic because of... Uh, you, you talking about <laughs> Because you see how it can get so tricky depending on what you value in the most valuable player because you threw out Embiid stats, LeBron stats. Embiid has played 31 games. LeBron has played 41. He's averaging 25-7-7, shooting 51% field goal. You talked about Embiid is shooting 52. 
when they get to be so good at basketball as these MVP candidates are, you probably hit it on the head best. We have no idea what is the deciding factor. I think that's why somebody I think that's why the fans are mad yes. every single year because it's like, well, we thought this was the criteria last year. Well, look so at this much guy. of it is narrative, right? I mean, like, listen, why did why did Carl Malone win yeah. an MVP over Michael Jordan in 98? It was because we were just like everyone was just tired of giving it to Michael Jordan. Greatness fatigue is what that I call that. I think LeBron yes. has a lot of greatness fatigue happening where it's like, yeah, yeah, LeBron, we know you're amazing. <laughs> so the fact that you're playing amazing at the age of 36, we don't care. You're amazing every year. Like, I, I think that's really yeah, happening. Yeah, I think LeBron now. in particular has dealt with greatness fatigue. I love that term. Greatness fatigue, basically since he was a teenager. I mean, yeah. we've never had an athlete who was so hyped and has – surpassed the hype so completely over the entirety of their career. Now, listen, you right. could uh, you can nitpick on uh, like the Miami series when he was with Cleveland, which he disappeared at right before he uh, left in free agency. You could pick you can nitpick. But other, those are you, situational yeah, other things, right? Like there's certain things you can nitpick. But when you look at the yeah. body of work and the fact that he's never done on anything yes. but like live up to this as it on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a teenager uh, talk about greatness fatigue. I mean, 28, eight and eight is we're bored by it almost. Like when LeBron goes 28 and eight, it's almost like, yeah. Oh, okay. Like he has to score yeah. 40 for you to be like, wow, holy shit. 28 and eight and eight is unbelievable. And he just does it every game for years. It's pretty amazing. And think about child stars, just the psyche of it. I mean, um, yes. Jaleel White, we know, yes. plays Steve Verkel. He has a whole podcast based around talking to child stars because of the psyche. LeBron was that. Think about all the things that's happened and LeBron to be so solid. So I think that the fact that it's like, oh, LeBron's hurt. He's out. It's like, well, wait a minute. It's, what? it's really amazing what, what he has done. And I think, you know, people get annoyed when you talk about it. Like whenever I tweet something or LeBron, people are like, oh, it's he choked in this case or what about Miami? And it's like, listen, yeah. I, he's been doing this for 18, 19 years now. That is astounding. There are people who were one year old who are now full adults who only know a world in which LeBron James <laughs> is like the greatest yeah. player in the world. And so it's really, it's really insane. Now this gets <laughs> oh, to wow. the other point yeah. of like when when we talk about his age in the context of the MVP debate, does it matter? Like he would be, he would be the oldest at 36 to win MVP. MJ was 35 and 98 Malone. Uh, Carl Malone was 35 and 99. Like, uh, does that become one of the talking points? I say no, because it's just, obviously it's a data point in a larger career, but like his numbers this season, I think speak for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he's playing well for a 36-year-old. Yeah. I think he's playing amazing for an NBA player. So that's why I think the age doesn't matter. The age just shows how amazing he is. Because imagine a 36-year-old, you're fresh out of college, 18 to 22 years old, and you're trying to compete with somebody that's 36 years old. And like you said, the numbers he's averaging, shooting 51%, 36% from three, like, it's it's really wild if you think about it, but, I mean, I get it, and it's great for the NBA because every year, because the NBA and the WNBA don't define what the V in valuable means, the world may never know, I guess. We will never know. It's just up yeah, for debate. I mean, uh, 
the Hornets played the Lakers uh, recently before uh, LeBron got hurt, and uh, LeBron was gushing about Lamelo, who's injured himself. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's like it's wild to me that Lamelo. Imagine being Lamelo and have to line up against a guy who you've been watching your whole life and is still cooking people. It's not even like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like, oh, I'm about to bust this yeah. old man. <laughs> He's still out here boiling people. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. It's not an old, like, you call him an old man, you're just being a hater. Because he definitely doesn't play like one, is is what I'm saying. But, yeah, LaMelo, that's it's a tough, tough blow. Really, like, yeah. I mean, because we're talking about MVPs. What about Rookie of the Year? How does that work for LaMelo? He might be out for the season, they're saying. Um, we don't know, but... We all know that he was one of the top leaders for Rookie of the Year candidates. I know that. He he made the Hornets must-watch for me. I didn't know, uh, you know, to be fair, I think I was a LaMelo doubter. I think I would categorize myself as a doubter. Obviously, he he came up through, uh, uh, he played in Australia professionally, and so there were a lot of questions about that, you know, the the level of competition in Australia, the level of physicality, athleticism, and and the... in the basketball, uh, pro basketball scene in, in Australia. Um, but people I know were like, no, he's going to be good. He's going to be good. And he has been fantastic. And it really, uh, it, it, a real blow. Yeah. He stayed in the game after he landed awkwardly, shot a foul shot. And that's when you could really see the pain etching across his face when he tried to take that shot. Um, and so now it's the, the race comes down to maybe Tyrese Halliburton, uh, maybe Anthony Edwards, who's come on of late, even though he's not uh, shooting particularly well, but he is uh, scoring a ton lately, and he's dunking on seemingly everybody around. I'll say this about Anthony Edwards: if Anthony, <laughs> yeah. if if they replaced Minnesota Timberwolves games with just Anthony Edwards doing a press conference, I would watch that. That would be that to <laughs> oh me is God. the win. I just love must see I TV. I love him like as a person and his personality and like the fun that he brings to it is infectious. No. And that's what he has going for him. And you kind of hit it on the head shooting wise percentage wise. It's just, I mean, he's shooting 38% from the field. It's not necessarily there, but boy, is he a walking highlight reel. And we know just from how casual fans and the NBA watch the NBA. If you only watch the NBA through your timeline, and that yes. social media timelines, you probably see a lot of Edwards because <laughs> yes. he's like, like to your point, Jason, he's, he's dunking, dunking on everybody. everybody. And everybody. that's the that's the thing. It's like, yeah, he's a highlight reel waiting to happen. Um, but I mean, if if LaMelo hadn't gotten hurt, and I know that there's other options too. Halliburton's a great option, Quickly's a great option, but LaMelo was kind of that mixture of he's a highlight reel and he's also effective. And so, yeah, I mean, how does that affect LaMelo now? If he's out for the season, you can almost pretty much, it's, it's like, you know, is it over for rookie of the is year? He, would he much. still be your rookie of the year considering the level that he was at for, you know, basically the entire season? But certainly since he was put into the starting lineup, he's been absurd. Um, would he still be your rookie of the year based on that? Or would you go somewhere else? I mean, it's tough for me because he's played 41 games this season. Yeah. Like, it's hard to judge somebody off of only half a season is what I'm yeah. saying. Like, that one, that's a lot. So that's why I said it's pretty much – it's probably over for him just because not enough – and that's – there may be – there might be a minimum amount of games played that that you need to play to be 
in these of the year runnings, but 41 just isn't enough for me. What about you? What are you thinking? Like who, who's your rookie of the year? It would have been ball by a mile, by an absolute mile. He just, the savvy, the intelligence, the kind of feel for the game. It's, it's really unique and rare to watch someone like that play. That said, you know, again, I, I think you're exactly right. Getting injured at this point of the season, I, I don't know that I could give it to him, even though, you know, Tyrese Halliburton, uh, quickly, Anthony Edwards haven't really played to the level that LaMelo has been playing at. I think you would still have to, op- you, you would have to give it to one of them. Uh, I think it yeah. would, for me, it would probably be uh, Tyrese Halliburton. He has, particularly in the beginning of the season, has played really well. And I think the, um, you know, I want to be clear about this. I'm not picking him purely because I own his top shot. And then I'm hoping that I will see I was waiting on that. (laughs) I was waiting on the word. It would have been like a drinking game. Like, when it happens, you, like, top shot was on the way. When I saw his name, I was like, top shot's on the way. It's on the way. Uh, I mean, Lamella's top shot actually is tanking in price. Uh, listen, uh, Tyrese <laughs> averaging uh, I think 12 points a game, five assists, three rebounds, shooting 47%, 41% from three. He's been really, really solid this year. I like him for the statistical reasons, and I promise you the fact that his top shot, which I own, <laughs> uh, looks to be heading upward and all the way to the moon. One would hope oh that played gosh. nothing into that played nothing into my decision. That is not part of it. I promise you. Uh, yeah, Tyrese we Halliburton hear you, Jason. Yeah, I... <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> what about you? Who would you who would you pick? Uh, I would say it's tough because yeah, like it's, it's Lamelo for me. It, yeah, it, it's it Lamelo for me. Um, and basically it was Lamelo until this day. So now yeah. I got to see moving forward. Who it's gonna be, basically. Right. But what I don't need to wait and see what's <laughs> happening. Hawks are on a winning streak, eight straight to be exact. I just want everyone to know it's been a long, long time coming, but I know. <laughs> Listen, we are here. We're at the number four spot. We're above the red line. I had to say it, Jason. I wasn't gonna be quiet if we we're talking NBA. We have to talk the Hawks winning streak come on baby i mean we haven't i can't even remember the last time we lost let me just think about that for a second um but it's it's tough because i love coach lloyd pierce i I just have to put that out there like i love coach lloyd Mm -hmm. pierce he was on the front lines with me last summer um did a lot of stuff with more than a vote everything he did was honestly amazing um and then when they let him go it was tough i was like really really sad for him and just the man that I know he is. And then the Hawks, apparently, I don't know what was going on, but the players, it's not like we got a whole gang of new players. It's not like we got a new team, players back from injuries. We're still waiting on DeAndre Hunter. And we just took off. I mean, we took off under interim head coach Nate McMillan. Um, This is our longest winning streak since December 27, 2014. Could that be? I mean... This is, I'm sad to even say that, but <laughs> here we are. We are here. 
Um, how do you feel about that, Jason? Because I know you being a Knicks fan, yeah. you have to you have to enjoy my excitement for this because this is just come on. I am uh, still reeling from the Sam Cooke drop uh, at the top of this <laughs> at the top of this category. Um, I think that you know. So much of coaching at the pro level is about personality management. It's not necessarily about X's and O's. I think that a lot of the stuff that Lloyd wanted to do, which is kind of democratize the offense a little bit more, get Trey off the ball a little bit more, have him, uh, you know, uh, ready to catch and shoot on the weak side where he could just, you know, devastate defenses as they tried to catch up to the ball. Um, I think that, it, it seems pretty clear from some of the comments from Hawks players and some of the other stories that, that I've read that I think he just pushed a little harder than the players maybe were ready to go. Um, it's not necessarily yeah. that he, that, that, that the scheme was bad. Um, and I think the way the Hawks are playing now is in some form or fashion, a response to that change. They're playing in a way that, says, hey, look, this is this is what we wanted to be doing. And so, um, first of all, I'm so happy for them. I'm happy for you. Uh, fun team to Thank watch. Thank you, when Jason. Fun team to watch when they're cooking. Ton of talent on that team and a ton of talent waiting to come back into the roster. Trey Young is, I, you know, he's going to lead the league in scoring at some point in his career. Maybe Not multiple. an all-star Trey Young. Yeah. That might be the best thing that happened to us. We got snubbed. He's fired up now and uh, just an offensive flamethrower. I'm happy for you. I'm happy. I'm happy to see them succeed and I'm happy for you. Thank you, Jason. Coming up next, Eddie Wong will join us to talk about his new film, Boogie. Stick around. believes in an Asian basketball player. It's a joke in this country. We can cook, clean, count real good, but anything else, we pick last. But if you stick to our plans and we beat Monk, we'll get our shot at the NBA. That was a clip from Boogie in theaters now. Boogie is the story of Alfred Boogie Chin, a basketball phenom living in Flushing, Queens, a.k.a. the best Chinatown in New York City, who dreams of one day playing in the NBA. It was written and directed by our next guest, chef, host, and author, Eddie Wong. His 2013 memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, was adapted as the 2015 sitcom of the same name. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us. What's up? Thank you for having me. Eddie, obviously storytelling has been such a part of your career, telling stories through food, telling stories through your memoir. And now you've written and directed a movie. Um, tell us about the inspiration for Boogie. Yeah, no, the the inspiration for Boogie really is uh, when I was seventeen. I watched Goodwill Hunting, and uh, I grew up in a a family with quite a bit of violence, and uh, wasn't able to talk about it. And you know, if, if police came or social services came, I I just wouldn't say anything. I would lie. And when I was 17, I was at my aunt's house and I watched Goodwill Hunting. And it was the first time I had seen anybody speak openly and honestly about domestic violence in a way that I could connect with. And I said to myself in that moment as a 17-year-old, 
I would love to make a movie. <laughs> I would love to write it. I would love to direct it. And I would love to make something so that another kid at that age um, will be able to watch it and feel less alone. Because because that movie really changed my life. That 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 movie made me feel like I could speak about things. And I think I've been speaking very loudly ever since then. Okay, so you knew you wanted to make a movie, but you went into sports and you made a sports movie. There's a lot of sports movies out here. I'm just curious why basketball, the sport you chose to to have the story of your main character, Boogie, be in. Like, why did you choose that avenue? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, for me, basketball was my way to experience America. It holds a very special mm. place in my heart. Um, I lived in a very traditional Taiwanese-Chinese home. And, you know, like we didn't even speak English in the house much. And everything we did it, it felt like we weren't even in America. But when I stepped outside, you know, on the driveway, I played ball with my dad and played ball with the kids in the neighborhood. Um, that that felt American to me. And that was my way to make friends and connect with other cultures and see how we approach things differently. And and also because, you know, Asian American men are, you know, many times emasculated in this culture. We're not expected to be good at anything physical. So I felt like setting that challenge up and landing this story in the world of basketball was really the only option. Like I, you know, I, it, I can't see it being anything else, perhaps boxing, but basketball really is more universal and it's a bit of a team game. Boogie, uh, like yourself is growing up in a, a traditional household. He says at one point uh, that he feels like he's got, you know, 5,000 years of culture uh, running through him and it's a, uh, you've espoused the same sentiment. Um, do you feel that way whenever you work on something uh, that's authentic to your background, that you've got like all this history that's coursing through you? Yeah, I do. I really do. Uh, I, I really do feel connected to my parents and grandparents and ancestors. And, and also that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, like uh, I still read like fifth century Chinese philosophy. I'll also read modern writers like Ha Jin. You know, and um, yeah, I do think it's quite important to have a historical context to what you do and stay um, at least emotionally connected. I don't think to me it's about the facts or shouting things out in that way, but it's to, to have that emotional connection because we are all so much more similar than we are different. And then um, I also do feel like we're all telling the same stories in every generation. A lot of Boogie's uh, struggle is balancing that uh, traditional upbringing with uh, with an American uh, style, with trying to integrate with American culture. What was that like for you, trying to balance that? It was uh, it was difficult. You know, it was very difficult because you have your family's expectations and you don't want to let them down, and it it almost feels like death to let your parents down. But I started to understand you, you only get one, one life in this body, in this moment. And while I do have a responsibility of my parents, my culture, there's a responsibility to myself as well. And I would seek out culture. I would seek out communities that were interesting to me, or I felt were looking at the world from a different angle and had a different type of wisdom or knowledge to impart on, on the world and myself. And uh, I, didn't stop myself. I wasn't like, oh, my parents will be disappointed. My parents don't like me going to this neighborhood. My parents don't like me interested in like this type of culture or music. Um, 
I really think it's important to engage all of America and participate in this experiment. So you you actually talked about reaching out to different cultures and tapping into all kinds of different ones. And Pop Smoke had a great performance as Monk in your film. And and rest in peace to Pop Smoke. He he passed away last February before this film came out. But what was that experience? What has that experience been like for you? You were directing the film and he was acting in it and now seeing the performance in the final cut. Just what was that like? It's pretty hard to capture on a podcast and, and tell you. It's it's a very yeah. it's a complicated feeling. There's a lot of joy for Pop for his performance. There's a lot of joy in seeing other people respond to him and see how talented he is. And there's a lot of responsibility in in kind of presenting his final work in a lot of ways. Um yeah. and, and then there's just like sadness because he's not here. Eddie, your memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, was, uh, as we noted above, turned into the ABC sitcom of the same name. Uh, you've been really outspoken about Asian representation. I think for a lot of Asian Americans, myself included, you represent Asian representation to to a lot of people. Fresh Off the Boat was uh, a real turning point in TV in terms of, of representing Asians on television. Um, what do you feel the state of Asian representation in, in film and TV is now and and where do you see it going? I I think it's growing. I think it's changing. I think there's money to be made in it. And anytime there's money to be made in something, you need to be careful about who you're allowing to make that money and who you're supporting in making that money. Um I think it's quite easy to see the people who were ten toes down from day one, the ones that are speaking from an honest place that are being vulnerable, that are taking on the actual responsibility and duty of representing your community and talking about the things that are difficult. And then there's the people that are kind of just selling their skin. And, you know, you have that in every group, you have that in every movement. And I try not to pay as much attention to it. I just kind of continue to make time and space in my heart and mind for the people that I think are, are being real, even if I disagree with them, you know? And like, for instance, Andrew Yang, you know, I, I really didn't like his article last year talking about, oh, we need to be more American. We should like wear red, white, and blue. And I was like, look, that was a pretty ridiculous article and a pretty ridiculous solution. But I think at the heart of it, Andrew Yang, I knew exactly what he was trying to say. Right. I wasn't sold on Andrew Yang being the messenger. Um I also felt like Andrew Yang at the time when he was running was like running on a very economic platform. Yeah. And I was like, look, man, of course you're Asian. Of course you're going to come from this economic perspective, but like you should think about what others expect from you. And at times preempt that, like maybe you should have done a little bit more work with the black Latino gay community, women community. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the Asian community is very, very small. Our perspective represents a small group of people in this country. And while I think it's a potent one and it's a it's a powerful, necessary perspective, um, I, I hope that Asians in America include others in our movement. Uh, I'm very inspired by the Caribbean. You know, a lot of Asians were sent to work on the Panama Canal, Chinese people, Indian people, um, Black people. Um, the black people were slaves. They were they were dragged there, you know, um, against their own will. Uh, 
the Asians were coolies, and in many ways they were slaves or indentured servants. But you see in the Caribbean how Black, Latino, you know, indigenous, Taino, uh, and, and South Asian people have, have lived amongst each other for quite some time. And you have wonderful quotes from Trinidad, quotes from Jamaica, you know, we're all on the money. You know, when you look at Jamaican money, you see indigenous people, black people, Indian, Chinese people, and it's, you know, out of many, one people. And when when Americans are like, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how we're ever going to get along. You know, it's, it's actually happened in many other places. And one of my favorite Easter eggs in our film is the Mr. Chin song. And the movie starts in a very, very traditional Asian way. It's my mother is the fortune teller and you're, you're reading the fortune. <laughs> And after the title sequence, going through flushing, you land in a town car with two like Asian uncles that are very street cultural, clearly influenced by black culture and and inspired by it. And they're listening to Mr. Chin by Yellow Man, who is an albino dance hall artist, complaining about the way Chinese shopkeepers treated him in Jamaica. And I love it. I love that song. I love that interaction. I think it's totally fine to complain about Chinese shopkeepers or <laughs> Korean shopkeepers. I mean, we have a tendency to go into other people's impoverished neighborhoods and sell them fucking drinks that are giving them diabetes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, this is what we've done. So it's great that somebody from the Jamaican community speaks back. And it's it's a conversation. It's important to have conversation. It's important to bring these things up. And it's important to show that like at any moment in time, you can be the dominant culture or you can be the oppressed. And it doesn't matter what color your skin is. Mm. Anyone with power can end up a terrible white person. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so I, I try to have moments like that in my films, which aren't so like it's just about Asians. Because I mean, yeah. the world is really big and we're all so much more similar than we are different. No, and that's it, that's exactly it. And you have such a unique perspective mm. on just everything. The Caribbeans, I love that because as you were explaining it, I could start to see it, you know, just knowing different people that are a part of the Caribbean culture. So what other stories are you hoping to tackle in your future projects to bring to life? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I, I wrote this story called Tuna Melt that um, it takes place in L.A. and it's about a hitman who... You know, he's he's like in the scene, you know, because like I know I know gangsters that are in the scene. I know street dudes and we all know what they do. You know, coke dealers that are in the scene. And it's like, yo, we all know your job. You never gone to jail. <laughs> You're good. You get to practice your quote unquote craft. And it's you're at every party. Everybody knows what you do. And I was like, I think that's a pretty interesting existence. And then I also felt like, remember, um, remember Prison Bay? when everyone saw that like convicts photo and it's like, oh my God, what a hot convict. And oh, he became like yes. a model when he got out of jail. I was like, I, I love this trajectory for somebody's career. And I love this concept of morality where it's like, when you're not hot and you're not cool, we want to throw you in jail. But if you are hot and you are cool, I'd love to have your baby. You know oh, what I mean? And gosh, so yeah. Tuna Melt is very much about a character who had a very, very traumatic incident in his childhood that drove him towards a violent life as a hitman. But he's actually a very charming, attractive guy who people in the scene love and think is cool. 
And he's like, could I be Prison Bay? And it's kind of like in the middle of his hits and in the middle of his jobs, he's like contemplating his next step and his future and how he's going to parlay. And, and it's also a commentary on like our world with social media and brands. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone's like, oh, what's what's my next move? What am I going to be next? And so it, it's, it's a movie about all those things. But at the end of the day, Renee, I love your question. I'm just interested in character. You know, um, I read Mark Twain's autobiography as a kid and he said, every single character I write is somebody I actually know. And Mm. every character I write is based on somebody I know or something I've done. And uh, I get obsessed with like a person or a character and then I build a world around them. And that's what happens. Finally, you're a Knicks fan. The Knicks are pretty good this year. How are you feeling about it? How are you feeling about the team this year? I, I feel great. I feel great. I feel wonderful about the Knicks. We've blown two games to the Sixers for no goddamn good reason. The refs are a big part of it. <laughs> refs. But I also think Julius, Julius, <laughs> Julius, since he became an all-star, is like he's got a little battery in his back and he's like arguing with refs more. And, and I think, I love Julius. He's the man. But he needs to just focus on, on the game. Uh RJ is playing a lot better since RJ's Boogie came out. You know, like yeah. I was I was complaining about RJ because RJ had no jumper until March this year, but he's <laughs> hitting. Uh I love that that Tibbs is sometimes starting Burks over Reggie Bullock, which I think we yes. need to do more of. And uh I mean when Derek Rose comes back, I think we're a much different team. You know, like Derek, we need Derek Rose back. That that means quickly as a flamethrower off the bench. Um, I would like to see us make a move, though. You know, I think we could use Ooh. more shooting. Who are you thinking? Use shooting. Bradley Beal. Who you think? Who you, you, you who, who would you? Who would you like to see there? I love. I love Bradley Beal. I would love Bradley <laughs> Beal. I always, every trade deadline, I feel every team should inquire about CJ McCollum because mm. eventually the Trailblazers mm. are going to have to do the right thing and blow that team up. And it's because because they him and Dame duplicate each other and. They're both phenomenal, but like, I always, I'm a big, just call and see what's up with CJ, like every year. And then Buddy Heels hanging out there in Sacramento. Yeah, they they not doing shit. And uh, I like Buddy, so I, I will call about Buddy Heald because we, we need shooting, you know? Uh, I think we have a point guard of the future and quickly. What about anybody from the Houston Rockets? Yeah, I, I, like, I like the Rockets. You know, the Rockets got dudes, but... You know, Eric Gordon, Eric Gordon's a good player, There's but a good one. you know, like John, yeah. yeah, John Wall's contract is ridiculous. You don't want that. Yeah. Oladipo, I, I don't know. Oladipo's always hurt. Like, I don't believe in his knee. I love Oladipo as a person, but like, <laughs> I don't want to max out Oladipo. I think Oladipo wants a lot of money, and I think Oladipo wants to be in Miami, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. For me, it's Eric Gordon is, is a guy like Eric. You know, Eric Gordon showed up in more games in the playoffs than James Harden did at times. You know, like when the Rockets had their backs against the wall, Eric Gordon had them big game sixes, big game sevens. James Harden (laughs) just fucking, he was looking, just, he wanted off the court. (laughs) Lou Lou Dort had him in handcuffs uh, last year. Yeah. Eric Gordon is a baller for sure. He's a baller. I like Eric. Yeah, he's, I, I like those underrated guys. I don't want it to like, sell the farm because I think our better years are ahead of us. But I think I a nice little playoff run, I think if we get one piece at the two or the three shooting that can play defense, 
I think we could win a first round series, get these guys some experience. So I, I would like to do that. And we got the Mavs pick next year. So hopefully like, you know, the Mavs, I hope Luca just kind of tanks. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I need the Mavs yeah. to lose more than anything. Absolutely. Uh, Eddie, thanks for joining us. Uh, Boogie in theaters now. Please go see it. Yes, Eddie. Do the best. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. Thank you for having me. All right, now it's time for Buzzer Beaters, where we talk about things we didn't talk about on the show really quickly. Jason, what you got this week? Uh, I talked about it a little bit up top, but I'd like to talk about it a lot more. The Knicks lost to the Sixers the other night because of an absolutely terrible call by the refs who were, to be fair to them, (laughs) down two refs because of COVID protocols. That said, uh, Julius Randle... NBA All-Star was called for a a push in the back of Tobias Harris as they were under the basket fighting for a rebound. Tobias was uh, cutting under the basket in the baseline. You could barely see it. Listen, (laughs) is it a foul by the letter of the law? Did Julius extend his arm? Uh, Sure, fine. Is it also a call that I have never seen called in the final seconds of a game under the basket while the ball is bouncing oh. around the rim? Yes, you don't make that call there. Why are you doing that? What? Ha- why is that happening? Come on. That's just fighting oh, for positions. I can, feel, I can feel your pain. It was awful. I've, and I'll just say this. It is, it is a mark of how wonderful this Knicks season is that I actually feel something this strongly. Usually I'm just dead inside by this point in the season. I like that. But I actually felt my, my pulse quickening. I actually felt my blood pressure go up. I, I actually felt anger uh, towards a referee because of a call during a Knicks game. And I guess that's good. That said, terrible <laughs> call. I hated it. And I want everybody fired. What about you? What do you have? <laughs> well, hey, I just wanted to address me calling. I can feel your pain, by the way, Jason. Thank I you. felt I it in, so in Durant. Um, I just wanted to address me calling a UConn game being a UConn alum. <laughs> um, there, yes, I do bleed blue. I would like to just throw that out there. I do bleed blue. However, I can still give an unbiased opinion about how I see the game. That's right. There's still X's and O's. I can still break down a game and... Just look at it this way. If you watch a game, you can see if a player made a good play or not, even if you might have affiliation with the other team. So just to put it in perspective, I am calling UConn's games. As you will see, I'm calling the upcoming Syracuse game that that happens as well, UConn-Syracuse. But I can be unbiased as well while I bleed blue. That's all I have for you. If you can't understand it, I don't know what to tell you. That has been Take Line for this week. Please join us next week and every Tuesday right here. Follow us on Spotify, on Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Like and subscribe and leave the five-star ratings or we will come to your house and burn it down. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, subscribe, okay? (laughs) Bye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production show is produced by Carlton Gillespie and Missouri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Our contributing producers are Caroline Reston, Elijah Cohn, and Jason Gallagher. 
engineering, editing, and sound design by Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. <laughs>